Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. And just to set the stage a little bit, one of the reasons we chose this particular topic, elders and deacons, for this particular casual conversation, it seems like in recent years among Southern Baptist life, we've seen a resurgence of interest in this particular topic. And a lot of the uh, churches are moving away from what's been kind of traditionally a single pastor with deacons church polity to now a multiplicity of elders at some level. That's happening a lot in the church planning, a lot uh, with the younger generation planning those, as well as transitionings. I know, Dr. Milioni, you had that go on, so uh, we'll talk about that during our time today. But to get us started, what I'd like to do is just ask each of you to give, if you will, a quick two minutes or less for each of you, try to really be concise with that, to tell us a little bit about your own, uh, let me give you a couple questions here. What kind of church did you grow up in? in terms of its church polity, and then what's your current conviction about deacons and elders and how that should work together? And then we'll, uh, we'll come back and I'll ask another question about that in a minute. So Duane, l- let me start actually with you since you're on my left here. Yeah, I grew up in an independent, fundamentalist, Baptist church, okay. KJV only. Don't go to the movies unless you're away on vacation and no one can catch you, that type of church. <laughs> <laughs> we had a... Uh, a deacon board, uh, but in, in my background with independent Baptist churches, often the, the ruling official of the church is the senior pastor, and he, you know, for the lack of a better word, is sort of dictatorial, and that may be a benevolent dictatorship or not. It really doesn't matter, um, but that's what I grew up with. I became convicted towards a um, congregational model of church government uh, led by a plurality of elders actually after seminary. Okay. Uh, at a church I was serving at, we were just trying to figure things out and we read Alexander Strzok and some pamphlets that John MacArthur was writing on questions about biblical eldership and we just began to dig into the scriptures. And I guess for me, when I made the connection that um, a pastor is an elder, then it, it just seemed like the New Testament opened up to me and then I had more freedom to, you know, to move towards a plural elder model and sort of everything just sort of fell from there. Okay, good. We'll, we'll kind of circle around to some of the questions you just lobbed out there that are there. But tell us, was there any particular text of Scripture that, that drove you here? It, again, I think what opened the door for me was Acts twenty twenty eight and 1 Peter 5, 2. When I made the connection that a pastor is an elder, an elder is an overseer, and that I could be called an elder, and in a Baptist church you can call your pastors elders, that kind of opened the door. And then I think the other, there's a lot of them, but the other texts sort of, they sort of made sense to me after that. Okay. Okay, good. Danny, same questions for you. What would you say? How'd you grow up, and then how'd you come to your conviction? Well, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I've always been a member of a Southern Baptist church. And the model that I saw was a uh, senior pastor or a pastor, uh, multiple, sta- multiple staff, deacons, congregational. And uh, that's just what I was always familiar with. Um, 
when I went to Bible college and seminary, that was still the, really the only model that was being offered, at least in our ranks. You'd have a pastor, and in most cases, uh, deacons had what I came to believe was a unbiblical uh, assignment in too many Baptist churches because when I looked at the New Testament, uh, Acts 6, which I do think is talking about deacons, 1 Timothy 3, uh, deacons are servants. And uh, in too many cases, they were not serving, uh, nor were they uh, functioning uh, spiritually. And um, so you, working through the New Testament, I came to, and my conviction today is, there are two offices. There is the elder who is a pastor, who is an overseer, and there are deacons. Working backwards, deacons are to serve. And personally, I would have no problem with female deacons. Uh, I would not ordain deacons, but I wouldn't ordain pastors either. But that's a whole other issue. Um, as far as the uh, model, I think the bottom line is not number, but qualification. You should have as many elders in uh, fellowship as are called by God, and I do believe in calling, and meet the qualifications of Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. And to piggyback on what Dwayne mentioned, when you look at the New Testament, the word pastor really only appears one time, and that's in Ephesians 4, and I think it should be translated pastor-teacher. The predominant word uh, is the word presbyteros, or, or elder. And I think what has happened in recent years is because of our return to the Bible and uh, our conviction concerning its inerrancy uh, and its sufficiency, you get into the New Testament and you see elders and you see it in the plural and you see that as the predominant term that is used to talk about those who uh, have the assignment of leading in a congregation. Now, we can talk later about first among equals and all of that type of thing. But clearly, that's what I think the New Testament uh, teaches us. All right, good. So again, tons of questions could come out of that. I'm going to skip them for just a minute sure. and let, let Dr. Merkel or Ben go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't have a model to, to okay. fall back on. I became a Christian when I was in high school and um, then went to Bible college. When I went to seminary, I joined a church that had not one pastor, but six pastors, and they called them elders. So that piqued my interest. Um, at, at that point, I was, I was curious. I really didn't know. I'd been introduced to um, various, uh, you know, became a Christian. It was a North American Baptist church, a typical Baptist model with senior pastor, deacons. Um, but not, wow, I saw something different. And I was able to, as an intern, go to elder meetings, see how they functioned together, see how they loved one another, they deferred to one another. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me. So when I went to do my doctoral studies, I did it on elders, on the relationship between the term elder and overseer in the New Testament. And if you do some careful research, I think you can trace the whole resurgence of biblical polity to my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> There were at least five people who read it, so I'm, I'm sure it had a great impact. You did your master's thesis on humility too, didn't you, on that? That was a minor. Yeah, that, that was, was your minor. minor. 
I, and I, I am one of those five, by the way. Yeah. I did read his dissertation. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Ben's done some really great work. And apparently, uh, so, so not only 40 questions and why elders, but there's another text out. Once you tell the group, I don't have a slide for that. We're going to have these up on slide either now or later in the show, but, or in the uh, show. Show. In the, <laughs> in the conversation. But yes. what's the other one you sent me last night, just so we can highlight that? Okay, so just last um, fall, a uh, book by the title of Shepherding God's Flock, Biblical Leadership in the New Testament and Beyond. And really what it does is it introduces the idea of, really it's a biblical theology of, of shepherding, of pastoring from the New Testament. Um, well, there's one chapter dealing with the Old Testament through the New Testament and then through church history. And then there's some practical chapters at the end. So I think it would be very helpful for the students. Now, Ben doesn't necessarily know this, but amongst uh, some of the administration, when we talk about Ben, we call him the machine. He's kind of, he just keeps pumping out really good material on that. And so it's good to know this one's out. This one's particularly of interest to me, so I'll look into that. Right, let me jump into some of the clusters of questions here. Let's start with first question. Danny alluded to it a little bit, but how many offices in the church? That's the general question on that. So let's, let's talk about that. The New Testament language for that um, Ben, let me just go ahead and bounce it back this way a little bit. How many offices in the church? And then I'll do a follow-up question there. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of a difficult question because you get in Ephesians 4.11 that Dr. Aiken alluded to earlier. Um, you, have a, you have apostles, you have prophets, you have van, evangelists, and then you have this, the Greek text tells us it's the pastor teachers. So a lot of people say, well, there's a five-fold or four-fold. Um, so there's some question about, about apostles, about uh, prophets. But when it comes to church offices, that's a different question because the way I see it, apostles and prophets were sort of extra congregational. Paul wasn't the apostle of a local church. And then there's the question of, are there apostles today like Paul? And I would say, no. Um, So I see Paul appointing elders. I see him giving qualifications for elders or overseers and deacons. So I see two offices in the church today. Okay, so you'd be more comfortable with saying there may be five offices, but for the church, there's two. Yes. Okay, so that, even in that, there's a question, okay, so how could you have an office that's related to the universal church but not be actually an office of the local church? Any quick thoughts on that? Well, I mean, Paul was appointed by God, mm-hmm. by, by Christ. So um, that's God's prerogative. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Either one of you guys want to jump in on that question of, of how many offices? Yeah. And uh, well, I, I, I would I would agree, uh, especially the whole God thing. But uh, <laughs> it, it, for me, I I like Ephesians two twenty that talks about the foundation of the church, you know, sort of this foundational layer of the church with Christ as a cornerstone the apostles and the prophets making up that foundation. And then the, the, the rest of the church is built upon that. So since Jesus is no longer on earth and his role cannot be duplicated, then I think we could argue that there was a specific role for apostle and prophet during that foundational period of the church that is no longer needed and cannot be duplicated. Although it's interesting that, that uh, there is a lot of apostolic terminology being thrown around today. Some water it down by calling themselves little a, but uh, we're still seeing it in a lot. Yeah. So with the terms apostle, prophet, evangelist, would you call that an, uh, an office that's currently alive it's, today? It's certainly a gift. Yeah. Okay. When you look at the spiritual gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 
Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. I think it would certainly fall into the category today uh, of a gift. And uh, in a sense, the, the I think we, well, the evangelist in the New Testament context was not just someone that went out doing evangelistic conferences or campaigns. They were people that were sharing one-on-one. They were people that were training people to share the gospel. And so I think that in that sense, there's an abiding nature to that particular gift. Um, And so I don't think that in any way is contrary to what either Ben or Dwayne was saying. If it's a separate office, the problem is we don't know what are the qualifications for an evangelist. Right. We don't see Paul giving, uh, appointing anybody as an evangelist. We don't see that in the church. We don't, we don't have anything to go on. So the only thing we have is, yes, people are gifted that way. Maybe some of the elders are also evangelists. They have exactly. a gift of evangelism. That, that could be as well. Okay, Timothy so. was called that. But I, what I wonder, and I'm, this is just trying to work things out in my head, is can we see, at least in some sense, the present-day church planter, the missionary as the evangelist, who sort of goes into an area where there is no church, brings the gospel, and as a result of believers gathering, then maybe churches are formed who will elect there. I don't know, but it it, it helps me. In that context, the word missionary is not in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But I think what the evangelist does comes very close to approximating what the missionary does. Okay, so let me just do a quick follow-up on this question then. It seems like what you're saying, if that's, if evangelism or that, that gifting to an individual is there, then that person ought to be rooted and sent by a local church that does have the offices of elder and deacon. Is that what you're saying? So in other words, someone who just goes out as an evangelist and they don't have that as their sending base, that they're really truncating themselves. You don't see anything of folks going out that aren't sent out by churches. Yeah. Yeah, Good. even the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, when they were sent out by the local church. So. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We just have so many, uh, I don't want to call them rogue because the intentions are great, but there's so many folks that just simply go out and say, I don't need the local church, I'm going to do my thing. Well, and maybe their intentions are great. Maybe they're not. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll leave that right there. On that. <laughs> All right, let me move to the next question. So let's define, let's define elders. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the definition, or, or let me change the question just to give a little more clarity. What is the essential role of an elder? And what I'm going to do a follow-up with you guys to think through is, how is that distinguished from a deacon? Sometimes people think of deacons as mini elders or elders in training. So we want to kind of hit on this topic there. So. Well, I like what Ben said a moment ago about the book that he's come out with. The primary assignment, I think, is shepherding. It's a good overarching metaphor for what elders, pastors, overseers do. They shepherd the congregation. Well, how do they shepherd the congregation? Well, First Peter chapter 5 gives us shepherd the flock of God among you, gives you the character qualities that you're supposed to do. But, of course, at the core of shepherding, I think, is preaching the Word and guiding and protecting the flock in terms of its doctrinal theological integrity. And if you read the pastorals, the danger of false teaching is brought up again and again and again. And how do you counter false teaching? With the Word, with the Word, with the Word, which is why pastors have to be able to teach the Word. Elders have to be able to teach the Word. That same requirement is not laid on the deacon. Now, I want deacons that can rightly divide the Word, obviously, but the same specific requirement is not there for them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, good. Or Acts 6. 
I'll come back to Act 6 in just a second, but either one of you guys want to jump in? Yeah, I would, I would add, they, and part of the, she the shepherding metaphor, they, they lead, they are making decisions, they do have authority. Yes. It's part of having that office, that calling, that gifting. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something that's sometimes left out is they, they need to equip. They need to equip and mentor the next generation. I think that sometimes, maybe in the previous generation, uh, was a weakness where with the professionalization of the ministry, we didn't really look at mentoring and, and bringing up the next group of leaders in the church. And I think that's important for the elders. So you would tie then there that, that office of elder is crucial then to the Great Commission language of, of going and making disciples of all nations. Would you be willing to say, Ben, that someone who's an elder, pastor, that that's primary in their job or chief in their job? Is that as far as you want well, to go? I think the Great Commission is, you know, coming upon all of us, so it would definitely apply to the elders yeah. to make disciples. And Absolutely. you have the Second Timothy 2 principle, which again is Absolutely. in the pastorals, yeah. where you're training those who will train those who will train those. Yeah, great. You want to jump in on that? The only thing I would add would be to protect and to heal. I think those would be the other adjectives I would want to throw in outside of the others. Okay, so uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, and then I was uh, short stints as a Presbyterian until I realized I needed to baptize adults after the conversion on that. So, uh, and so in some of my thinking, multiple elders wasn't a hard thing to think through. But one of the questions coming from Catholic into Protestant that I just never had to wrestle with, and I started to when I was in seminary and years following, was it seems like a lot of churches use deacons as elders in training. They're, they, they're just kind of many elders in that sense on that. So have you ever, I don't know if you've ever heard that language before, but that's a perception that's out there. Would you, would you speak to that a little bit on that? Dwayne, you want to start? I, I like the idea of elder in training for um, all of the men in the church. I mean, I, it would be a great thing for men to aspire. And, um, and so I don't have a problem with terminology. I, I think in terms of the character quality uh, that uh, uh, is uh, in need of a deacon or an elder are basically identical according to the scriptures. The role is very different, but, but the character quality is there. So whether it would be, we, we basically call our staff elders in training, hmm. and some of our staff were deacons, some of our, de some of our current elders were deacons, and so I could, I could see that easily as being a... So to follow function. up then, so in the local church context, though, would there be men that you would say they're probably not going to be elders, but they quintessentially fit the profile of deacons, and so that's a high and lofty calling for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the, the deacon office isn't lesser as no. much as it is different. It's different. Okay. Either one of you want to think? Yeah, I think we have to be careful that we don't, we don't look at the deacon as a stair step to becoming an elder. Like first you try, you know, trial balloon, we'll, we'll see if you do how you do. They, they meet, need to meet the same basic qualifications, but they have different gifts and different callings. And so they don't need to be able to teach. Um, they don't need to have that. Uh, they, they do need to be able to hold the word with a clear conscience. So it means they need, need to know it and they need, need, they need to live according to it. Right. Or so they won't have a clear conscience. Mm -hmm. But they don't need to be able to teach it. So I, I see different, a different type of person being a deacon as opposed to being an elder. Now, it doesn't mean that somebody can move from deacon and realize and hone their gifts of teaching, but if they're a servant type who doesn't, they don't, maybe don't like to teach, um, that, person's, that person's a deacon. Okay. 
So let's go to Acts chapter 6. Give me a little bit of commentary on this. We had several questions about this. You could make the argument, Stephen in particular was a phenomenal teacher, and he's appointed as a, a deacon. So there's been some question, could you say that Acts chapter 6 was actually the appointing of, of elders because so many of these guys had the giftings of teaching? How would you handle the question of elder and deacon in relation to Acts chapter 6? I don't think so because they make a clear distinction between those who will give themselves to the Word and those who will wait on tables. And you do have two that are mentioned in terms of going out and teaching, but only two of the seven, and that is Philip and Stephen. So I don't see Acts 6 at all. Uh, talking about the appointing of elders, it is talking about those who will serve and minister so that the elders are freed up to give themselves to prayer and the teaching of the Word. Okay, so Danny, if there's overlapping of gifting like Stephen has clearly this great ability to teach, sure. that doesn't necessarily mean that, they, uh, that he's actually an elder. He's never called an elder, <clears throat> and neither is Philip. Philip's called an evangelist, and Stephen is not called anything. He doesn't have any particular nomenclature that's attached to what he did. The very reason he was appointed was to serve, not to teach. Right. So we have to be careful not to conflate the stories. Good. There is a need in the church. Widows were being neglected. Therefore, let's appoint seven men to serve them so that we can devote ourselves to the Word of God in prayer. So they were appointed to serve, as Danny said, to free up the, the apostles to the Word of God in prayer. And as we look now, we see that who is... Who are those who are dedicated to the Word of God in prayer? That has devolved to the elders. Elders. Okay. Okay, good. Let me do a couple questions that might be a, a tad bit quicker on here. One of the questions is, what about the length of a term that an elder should serve? Is, is somebody appointed an elder or deacon for life, or is it three years? And if so, how do you figure that out scripturally? There are three different ways that churches typically do this. They do a term, or they do... Um, they do, they, or they do it for life. Maybe there's two ways. Um, th there's different, t different terms. Okay. Um, I would never say that somebody's appointed for life. I don't think that's good terminology. Someone's appointed until their term runs out, if they have a term, or they're no longer qualified. This is not the Supreme Court. You have to meet certain qualifications. Um, or they no longer want to be an office bearer. Okay. So to push back on that a little bit, and I'll let you guys jump in then. In some ways, couldn't you look at the qualifications of elder, though, being character traits that should be enduring? And therefore, um, if you meet the requirements and are ordained or are called into that, why would that end at some point, um, other than self-disqualification? Help me think that through. I don't think it necessarily should, as long as the person is serving in that role. Okay. Thoughts from you guys? Well, I think that there is an important uh, component to this, and that is calling. And I do believe in a calling. I do believe that this is not something, yeah, I think I'll give this a roll, see how it works, works out great if it doesn't, and that's not what Ben's saying. But for me, in my own personal life, and I, again, I want to be careful giving an experiential argument, but I think I can ground it in Scripture. Uh, when God called me into ministry, and called me to a leadership assignment, which I always thought I would be a pastor, an elder, an overseer. Uh, I never sensed that that was anything other than for life. Now, I absolutely agree with Ben. If I cease to meet the qualifications, then I'm disqualified. Would that rule out me taking a sabbatical? No, I don't think it would. But the idea that um, I might serve for a period of time as an elder, 
And then, man, I've done that. I'm through. I'm done. And I step aside. I think that, I think that lessens the loftiness of what I think the office of the elder should be. And so, now there's difference here. You've got John MacArthur, for example, and at Grace Community, an elder is an elder for life unless they become disqualified. Other churches do a term type of thing. And we have to be fair. The New Testament doesn't really address it one way or the other. But I do think in this contemporary generation, there is a concern that I have of men going into pastoral ministry, going into eldership. And if you say, well, tell me about your calling. And they just kind of look at you with this kind of blank stare. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, it's just something I, no. Because here's the deal, practically speaking. If you don't sense that this is indeed a calling of God on your life, then when things get tough, you walk away. All right, so help me out on this. Again, recalling my own background. When I first became Southern Baptist and I heard people talk about calling, I, you know, I was like, you know, did you get a phone call from God? I don't, we didn't even use the language of calling in my, in my evangelical experience, not to mention my Catholic experience. So how do I differentiate, and I'm going to say this in a kind of a funny way, I don't mean to be crass though, but how do I differentiate between an internal sense of calling and last night's pizza, which might be indigestion? Let me, let me think through. Well, I would say one thing is you've got confirmation from others who've observed your life and seen the evidences of calling. When, when God, again, I didn't walk with God as a teenager, so I didn't really have the biblical kind of, you say, well, where'd you get this idea of calling? I didn't have it, but I can tell you what happened on a Monday night on a mission trip in Sales, Arizona, uh, in a revival service where I, in a sense, almost got knocked over with an overwhelming conviction, your life is shifting from this direction to this direction. Well, I didn't really know what to do with that. So I went to the leaders in our church, and in essence, they said, well, we've seen this coming for six months. There's nothing about this surprises us. Here's what you need to do now. And so there was this internal sense that this is what I believed God wanted me to do with my life. And at the same time, there was confirmation from those that knew me, that were more spiritually mature than I happened to be, that affirmed what God was doing and leading. Okay, so in a sense of internal oughtness. It was internal and external. And I think First mm-hmm. Timothy 3 at least kind of opens the door to that. Okay, good. So internal oughtness and external aff- affirmation by those who are in authority over your life. And then probably an evaluation of your giftings. Right, yeah, although that actually unfolded because if you'd asked me, so you feel like you're gifted to do this, I wouldn't even know what you're talking about because I just didn't know the biblical teachings on that. But as it became evident, I said, well, you know, because again, much to my shame, I have no recollection of reading a book in high school. I went to one of those kind of schools. Yeah. Didn't read a book, didn't write a paper. Then God calls me into ministry. I go to Bible college, and now I'm writing a motherload of papers, reading tons of books, but what happened was God changed my desires. And whereas in the high school years, I didn't want to read a book, didn't want to write a paper, just wanted to play ball. Um, now, I had an insatiable desire to read, and that has stayed with me now since I was 20 years old, 38 years. And so that kind of also, I think, gifting fleshed itself out in the process. And again, I was affirmed by others around me that I believed in, trusted, that I believed loved me and wanted what was best for me, I received their affirmation. And I'll just say this, had I not received that affirmation, even at that young age, I would have pulled back. I've always been really big on listening to the voice of others. Now, again, I realize that God can speak to us in such a way that we look at all of our brothers and say, I'm sorry, I disagree, I'm going in this direction. 
Uh, for me, just this is me, that'd be one out of a thousand decisions I would make because I just really do believe that God confirms things. And you read the book of Acts, and they're receiving Paul, Barnabas, Silas. They're receiving external confirmation as they're going out doing what they're doing as well. Let me follow this up with you, Duane. This is not a question that we have on our list here, but given what Danny just said, and because you're doing a lot of church planning, identifying elders, people to, to send out as church planners, do you run into folks that you have to say no to based on this idea? Tell us a little bit about that. What's that experience like, like as a pastor, and, and how do you understand that, what you're doing in the life of a younger man as you help identify that? Well, I, I appreciate the whole internal and external um, qualifying comments. Uh, I would agree with those. I, I do think that it is the responsibility of uh, the local church, particularly the elders of the local church, to send and to affirm giftedness towards uh, pastoral ministry. And I think sometimes it's necessary for uh, the pastors of the church to say to a young man, um, we don't see the giftedness in you you know, towards this. And, and that's been a hard conversation that I have had at times uh, to help, hopefully help guide guys. And, and I don't necessarily think that has to be a permanent thing. It could be a right now. Seasonal. We don't see it. It could be a seasonal thing. But um, yeah, we've had that conversation. And you work when you do that largely within the context of the other elders helping you think that through. And that's yeah, one of the benefits we, of multiple elders there? Yeah, I, you know, I amen the comment about ordination i just i just think that we have missed a a good helpful understanding of ordination uh, you know it seems like today ordination is just get a group of of you know folks together and affirm a guy lay hands on him and now now you're you're good for life i mean i i think the the new testament model and the model we try to emulate is to walk alongside a younger man for years, for years, not, not just weeks or not just at an event, but, you know, walk along a guy for several years and you really get to know them and you can kind of get a sense of, of, you know, where they need to be in the church. So what if a guy says back to you, I have this burning in my heart and I know this is from God and I need to do this, therefore I'm leaving open door and going to do this on my own. How do, you, how do you think through, how do you yeah. help that guy? That conversation with a Mormon not too long ago, that burning in the heart thing, but um, <clears throat> I wouldn't know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, um, tell that, that young man he's wrong per se. He, maybe he does need to go to a different local church where they can continue to foster that or send that, but, you know, I have to make decisions based on my church, and so I don't, I don't know if I, if I would necessarily shut the door on him leaving to pursue that elsewhere, I would have to say, well, you know, if you remain here, this is, this is kind of where we're going to... Okay, so a cautionary you. note to say, yeah, you yeah. Know, listen to people in your probably, life. Probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. Okay. All right, let me think through a couple other quick questions on here. Um, here's one that came in, this is the raw form it came into us. Why are Southern Baptists scared of the word elder? And I think what they're after here is probably yeah. what's going on with this single elder versus multiple elder question on that. So how would you think through how many elders should there be and are Southern Baptists afraid of this language of, of elders? Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I think the answer to the question is yes and no. Some are afraid of it. Uh, others gladly embrace it because they find the terminology to be biblical. Uh, why do they hesitate? 
I think in some cases, well, there are multiple reasons. One, there is, it's new to them in terms of the common vocabulary we've used for years. Uh, some have seen it not work well, but my experience has been it doesn't work well when you take carnal deacons and make them carnal elders. Well, surprise, surprise, it doesn't work well. Carnal people don't do anything well except cause trouble. And so, uh, I, I don't understand the rationale for some pastors who actually bring this upon themselves uh, because as I said earlier, and I will stay very firm on this, the issue is not number. The issue is qualifications. If you only have one person in your particular fellowship that meets the qualifications of an elder, then you should only have one elder. Now, should you be content staying there? No, because your goal is to raise up other godly men that have this calling upon their life and meet these qualifications. And when they do, then you begin to expand the elders. Now, again, I have no problem and actually think that the book of Acts, especially chapter 15, helps make the argument for a first among equals. I think James functioned as a first among equals. If you want it in contemporary terms, you go to Capitol Hill, it's very clear Mark Dever is the pastor of Capitol Hill among a group of elders. If you go back five years ago to Bethlehem in Minneapolis, John Piper was the pastor. You go to Grace Community Church and you can see the sign out front of the church and it says, John MacArthur, pastor. So even these churches that have a very strong conviction about plurality of elders, and I agree with them, they don't, in any of those instances I just mentioned, see any problem with there being a f- person who, in terms of giftedness, is the pastor, and therefore, in some sense, is providing direction and leadership, though he is not, in some sense, at the top of a totem pole where no one can get to him, and that's the danger with the single pastor model. You get men that are either benevolent or malevolent dictators. And at that point, the church is going to run amok eventually. And therefore, that's the great genius of the biblical model for elders because even if you are in that pastoral leadership assignment, you are accountable to others who are your equal. But you're just a first in terms of your functioning and your gifting and the way you're serving. Okay, so let me just get you to clarify the biblical text there because I could make the argument based on the way you just argued it that you said there's multiplicity of elders but I know these great churches. We've got Piper, we've got MacArthur, we've got Dever, and they function as first among equals. That's an experiential argument, and you were, you're actually oh, and rooting it. they would always say that there's, I asked Mark Dever flat out one day, so why are you uh, the pastor? And oh, what he shared was, he said, well, we rotate our elders, yeah, all but one. <laughs> I said, really? Might I have the chance to guess at which one doesn't <laughs> rotate? And I think I'm probably looking at him. He grins. He says, yes, that's exactly right. And I said, so what's your biblical argument? And his response was, oh, it's not biblical. It just works well. Okay. So you well, at least I appreciate argument. his honesty. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. You know, it works so well. Now that you've thrown Mark under the bus, you make oh, a biblical argument. Oh, he deserves to be under the bus on, on multiple occasions. <laughs> so how would you make the biblical argument for first among equal? This is the, the chapter James, that you wrote. Okay. I think there's a pattern. I wrote on this. I, I wrote an article uh, and was heavily dependent, by the way, upon Ben's excellent dissertation. His other books were not out at that time. But I made an argument that you have a pattern throughout the Scriptures where you have a first among equals kind of model. And then you come to Acts, and you say, well, that's the only example. Well, it's a pretty clear example that James stepped up to the plate among the elders and the apostles and delivered the decision. Was he still accountable to all of the other elders? Absolutely. 
could they indeed hold him accountable for absolutely but he clearly seemed to be functioning in that role and you know he's my hero uh adrian rogers used to say playfully uh, anything without a head is dead anything with more than one head is a freak well in his playful sort of a way i think he's right and the fact of the matter is somebody is going to have to kind of lead the helm of the ship but does that negate others being very active in the leadership as well and being very active in holding each other accountable? First Timothy 5? No, I don't think there's a problem with that at all. Okay. Let me shift here just a second. Do you want to go ahead and comment? Go ahead, John. I was going to say, I think, I think the church does have a head. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think to have, to have one person at the, at the head um, isn't the best picture of the church. I think when you have a multiplicity of elders who are... Who are equal in status. I guess you could be equal and first among equals. Yeah, I would say equal in um, status. I wouldn't disagree with that. But then you don't But need, even your you church has a your church has a leader. pastor though, doesn't it? We have a lead pastor, okay. but not a senior pastor. There is, is it, a senior pastor in the Bible. But is lead pastor, Jesus. senior pastor a terminological issue, both of which are not in the Bible by the way? I pref- yeah, I mean for me I would prefer just elder or pastor without making distinctions even though he will function in that kind of a way. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, t- Terminology is not the issue for me, but I still think there… I've never seen a church, maybe there is one somewhere, that doesn't function with someone as a leader or first among equals or a pastor. Call it whatever you want to. I've just never seen even those that have plurality of elders. I mean, John MacArthur is the… and he said, oh, I'm just one of the elders. No, you're not. That's not honest. That is not honest. He is the pastor. John Piper was the pastor at Bethlehem. Mark Dever is the pastor at Capitol Hill. Dwayne is the pastor at Open Door. But in the elder meetings, one vote. Which I think is absolutely what you would want. No more authority. And I I, I, I don't see that being incongruous with someone… What was the word you used? Not lead, lead pastor. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. All right, let me ask you this question since we just kind of got after that. This is related um, in an important way. There's just so much left. I'm trying to figure out how to triage for the last 15 minutes on here. Um, let's talk briefly, brief as you can. How does, how does multiple elder leadership work with congregationalism, which has been historically a Baptist approach to polity? So, want to take a shot? It, it works wonderfully. Okay. I mean, if I, if I could rally support for the complete abolishment of church business meetings and deacon boards, I, I, would, I would see this as a, a, a victorious meeting today. No, it, it works wonderfully. It really does because you, you, you can have a congregation that elects its pastors and then, you know, follows their, their loving leadership, but ultimately they have the authority to dismiss them. Um, you know, interestingly enough, we've moved... Uh, uh, at our church uh, to an actual every third year vote on all the elders. So even myself, even the paid elders, every three years the church will elect or re-elect me to serve. And so I I love it. I, I really think, you know, the discussion is thinking about elders, deacons, the differences. Someone does have to lead. And and I, I think that you know, if the congregation would allow a group of pastors to lead 
and they entrust them to do that, it, it works very well. I would just add, it works really well if you have regenerate church membership and you take very seriously the privilege of church membership. Church membership is not a right. It is a privilege. Mm. And if you take regenerate church membership seriously, then you don't have these horror stories of these Wednesday night business conferences where unregenerate people show up whose name's on a roll who haven't been there in years to come in and terminate the pastor and all that kind of malarkey, which happens way too much. You have a regenerate body of believers. Regenerate people tend to love the Lord, serve the Lord, and honor the Lord, and obey the Lord better. But in too many of our Baptist churches, it's just travesties, almost blasphemous, that we'll have a thousand on our roll, and we'll be fortunate if we have three or four hundred in attendance, mm-hmm. and at least three to four hundred have not been in the presence of the gathered community for years, if not decades. That's just absolutely insane, and it's not biblical. And therefore, in a lot of these situations, that's what needs to be dealt with. But again, we can chase that too far. Let me just say this is a pastoral word. If you go into a church like that, you've got to start where they are and take time to get where you want them to be. If you go in and the first thing you do is start hacking the membership, you need to go ahead and call U-Haul on Monday because you're going to be out on the side of the street. Okay. I'm actually going to defer that question in a few minutes. I'm going to come back to transitions and how you transition a church if you want. So that'll be our probably where we'll finish today with that conversation with you, Duane, in particular. But two topics I want to make sure we hit here before we get out today, and that is, what about women as elders and deacons? And so let me kind of shepherd the questions a little bit here. Is there any New Testament evidence of women serving as elders? Not deacons at this point, just elders. None. Okay. That I found. All right. Uh, How should we respond to churches that, that do have female elders? Try to correct them biblically. Can a woman be a pastor to women? I don't think it's the best terminology, but I don't have a problem with it. Are we comfortable with the language of calling that person an elder? No. No. Okay, so you're making a distinction. Well, that's why I said I don't think it's the best terminology. Because you're saying you're pastoring her, then you're using it as a verb. But do I think it's wise to call women pastors? No. Okay, so… Because I think it runs… Even if you don't believe that they're called to a leadership assignment in the church, you're running the risk of biblical confusion by muddling the terms and what they meant. What about deacons? Is there any New Testament evidence for women serving as deacons? Men, what would you say to that? There's a, there's a little bit. Um, you have uh, Phoebe in Romans 16. She's called the diakonos. Is it some translations deacon, some translations servant of the church at Centria? So, you know, sometimes it's um, Paul calls himself a diakonos or somebody else, but it's a diakonos of the Lord. But she's tied to the church, so that's a possibility. Then you have uh, 1 Timothy 3.11, where you have qualifications for the male deacons. And then starting at verse 8, verse 11, you have now their, is it their wives or the women deacons. The Greek text is, is ambiguous. Um, and so some will see, yes, there's, this is referring to women deacons. Myself, I'm not convinced or persuaded that either 1 Timothy 3.11 is referring to women deacons or that it's not clear to me that Phoebe is actually a 
officer of the church. She could be sent by the church on an official errand. Okay, so in that, would, would this be fair to follow up to say then, therefore you would not be in favor of women as deacons? I would not be in favor. Okay. Though if, if I were attending a church, I mean, I think I could attend a church that had women deacons as long as they were the biblical demarcation between, you know, biblical deacons and elders. Was clear. Because yeah. I, I just, there's a lot of people who disagree with me whom I respect, and I know it's not, uh, it's not as clear as it is with elders. With elders, I think it's, it's, it's clear enough. Okay. Dwayne, you want to come? Um, I'm 70-30 in favor of female deacons. Uh, but what I'm wondering is if First Timothy 3.11 was not talking about a subset of the deacons, of the male deacons. So we had basically male deacons, and then we had also had under them a subset of female deacons that would serve. I mean, historically, we know that female deacons would help with baptisms and things like that. So I, I want to believe there always has been, but I'm still not in favor of giving them sort of a leadership position that would imply that, you know, the office would be in any way authoritative over, over men. Okay, so and the modifying passage, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, is that where you're calling this line of demarcation? Yeah, and, and the difficulty is that if we if we make deacons such a low office that women, you say, okay, it doesn't, doesn't uh, go against 1 Timothy 2.12 that women cannot teach or have an authority. That, you know, if everyone's a deacon, no one's a deacon. Because the, by definition, an office is something that has, a person is given authority, they're given a title. So the idea that we make deacons such a nothing, no authority kind of role, oh, you're, sir, you're a deacon of this, you're a deacon of that. No, they are actually leaders, and they do have some sort of authority. That's how I see it. So that's why I'm, again, hesitant uh, with women deacons, because I think that could potentially violate First Timothy 2.12. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you would be in favor of, of women deacons. I'd be open deacons. to it. If I agree with what Ben said. If they are clearly <clears throat> demarcated from elders and the leadership of the church, I wouldn't have a problem with it. In fact, what I, what I think in terms of fleshing it out is Titus 2 where you would hopefully have, so in a sense they're functioning like godly spiritual deacons or deaconesses where you've got older men training younger men to grow up to be godly men and also older women training younger women to grow up to be godly women. And that kind of arrangement, I'm fine with it, but I would never ordain them, nor would I in any way imply that they have a ruling, leading assignment in the church. And so when Ben says you've got to have that clear demarcation, the problem in so many of our Baptist churches today is you don't have that. So in a lot of situations, even if I'm open to it in terms of a little flex room here, I might not do it because there's confusion about exactly what the deacon is. And so until I've clarified what the deacon is, then we're going to very clearly stay with an all-male diaconate. But I also am going to work very hard to help them understand what biblical deacons actually look like and what they actually do. Okay, so just a quick follow-up. Give me just a thought on this. Um, could you have a church where you had elders without deacons? Would that be something you would admonish? Would you? Well, I mean, I think you see that probably in Crete when yeah. Paul is, you know, in Ephesus, a more established church, Paul gives qualifications for overs- overseers or elders and deacons. But in Titus, he doesn't mention anything with deacons, uh, just qualifications for elders or overseers. In Acts, Paul never appointed anybody to the office of deacon. I think the diaconate is a, 
again, it's a, it's a role where they come in to free up and help the elders serve, so it's not as essential. I think an established church should have deacons, though. Okay. Let me just leave that one here because I've got two other categories I want to get to right before we, we finish and give as much time as possible for this. One of the things that's important for us to think through is the question of divorced uh, folks qualifying for this office. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 talks about the husband of one wife. So just briefly, we're running out of time with some of this question on there. How would you think through that? Can someone who's divorced and not remarried be an elder? I'll, and I'll ask about a remarried person. We'll go through some Based of that. Based on 1 Timothy 3, 2, I would say possibly. Okay. Because I think it, the, the qualification is to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. I interpret that to be she, he needs to be, have been faithful to his wife, um, his current spouse. Um, so in, in your question, it was specifically somebody who in the past… <clears throat> Someone's been divorced in their past, and now they're not remarried, but they want to be an elder in your local church. I, I would say the door isn't necessarily closed, but it's pretty tight. Okay. I think it's important that we are consistent with 1 Timothy 3. The character qualities, the implication is present character quality. I mean, what if a guy was a drunkard? Does that shut the door on him? What if the guy was pugnacious in the past? I mean, you know, we, we look at all the other character qualities and say, right now, currently, are, are you exemplifying godliness? And then to make the first or this one... To be a past scenario doesn't make sense to me. I think to be consistent, we have to say presently, is this man faithful to his wife, his one wife? And if so, he passes the test just like we would do the others. Okay, so then let's say we have a scenario where a guy is, uh, divorces his wife, walks with the Lord for 10 years. She's still alive, but now he's married to somebody else. Yes, if presently, if presently he is faithful to that woman faithful to his family, faithful to the children on both sides, even if he had kids before? Is he proving to be faithful even to the kids in the other family? I, I don't see how we can relegate an event when we, we don't do that with all the other character qualities in the list. That's just my thought. The bottom line is that they'd be above reproach. Yeah. And so if a person is above reproach and has demonstrated that they are above reproach for a lengthy period of time, then I would be open to it. Now, I'll be honest with you. If, using your scenario, the person was guilty of adultery uh, and had walked away from his wife and has now remarried this new wife, I would not uh, support his being in the role of a pastor. I would not. Okay. Now, my position is actually different, but since I'm not necessarily one of the key what is your position? let me just say it real quick. My understanding of marriage is as a covenant, once you marry someone, you're married until that person dies. So if you get a divorce, that's just a piece of paper from the government. In the eyes of God, you're continually married. So if you then remarry, you are, in essence, uh, a bigamist. You have two wives, so you simply cannot be the husband of one wife because of the nature of what marriage is. So I would say that, yes, the character quality is being described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but it's really, we also have to describe what marriage actually is. And if it's a lifelong covenant that depicts Christ's unending love for the church, then I'm going to say that the definition of marriage needs to be clearly defined in order for me to then think through. First you see, this is a question that is only engaged among those who hold to an errant Bible. Yeah. 
those who, who have jettisoned biblical authority just throw caution to the wind and it doesn't really matter. And so that's why in this group here that we might differ, we're differing in a very small box. We're not differing in a wide open playing field. All right, so we have one last question, and Dwayne, I want to defer to you first on this. You've been in a church situation where you actually tried to, and and were successful in helping the church morph from a single pastor, deacon board run church to one with multiple elders. Is that right? Did I describe that right? It was a committee-led church. Committee-led church, okay. Uh, So help us think through what's transition like? What would it, what would be... uh, that may even be worse. Yeah, I, I know. We, uh, Sam Williams is here to deal with you as soon as we're through. Okay, thank you. Let so me. help us think through um, what are some pieces of advice you would give to someone who's thinking, yeah, you know, biblically I, I'm convinced that there seems to be, clearly through Acts, there's churches with multiplicity of elders. And, uh, and particularly if you're in a place where you're convinced that's the right thing for this church to do, how do you transition well? Yeah, it is a bit dangerous to know that that's the way the church should be because you have to do something with that. Um, it was probably the hardest thing I've done as a pastor or one of the hardest things that I have done to try to transition uh, my church in this direction. I made a ton of mistakes. Um, I, would, I would probably say that um, you have to know your congregation and its history. If your church has a very long history, this is not something you can do overnight. It may take years to make what this transition. What was the time frame that you were able to do it in? Um, we did it in several years, but there was actually a point where we were going to vote on a new constitution, and I stopped the whole process because my church was about to split in half, and we had to just stop and delay. And then, to be honest, a number of f- folks' families had to leave in order for us to find unity to move forward. Um, I think my advice would be, earn your credibility first as a senior pastor or a lead pastor. And once you've established credibility, begin to garner support amongst leaders that are willing to see the Bible uh, and uh, to believe what it teaches, even if that means a, a change. And then I would encourage just a lot of teaching, information before implementation. A lot of teaching. I taught through Titus. Uh, we had conversations like this, Q&As uh, in our church. People could come and ask questions, and, and then when you feel you're ready, pull the trigger and pray. Patience and time. Seems so, so for both the ordination of elders and deacons, time, patience, calling those questions, as well as being wise as a pastor to give things time and let them stew and, yeah. and, and stir the pot correctly and wisely, because you're really not after your agenda. You're trying to align to a biblical agenda, yeah. and if you can get your people in the Word to dig into that, that's the most useful thing and, we can ever and I do. And I would say that, you know, even if you feel like, well, church is going great, the current model works, we don't have elders, but I would say that, but what are you going to leave? Because, you know, when you leave the church without any pastors, it may not be great. Which, as a matter of fact, we've seen this happen time and time again. Great churches, healthy churches fall apart because they didn't leave with other pastors or other elders in place. So I, I think there's a responsibility not just currently, but in the future that you have to Mark, think let about. let me just interject wisdom. in that context. That's the wisdom of how to pass on a healthy legacy from one leadership uh, uh, lead pastor to the next. Uh, few things are more unbiblical and destructive than most contemporary mm-hmm. pulpit committees. Yes. Amen. I think they were birthed Hallelujah. in the pit of hell. 
And so uh, it's my humble opinion. And so if I were in a church, I would want among the plurality of elders, that would be the search committee for the next lead pastor. And I assure you, the odds of you getting someone that will provide a seamless transition, a healthy transition, goes way up when you've got, amazingly, spiritual, godly men making the decision as to who will be the next lead pastor. And maybe that would help us get away from kind of the uh, iconic uh, pastor who runs his church basically largely. It grows because of his personality instead of because you have a plurality of people who are leading on it. Maybe not, but that's something to think about. Well, we've run out of time, gentlemen. Thank you for the the time together. Let me uh, close this in some prayer. And then we also have uh, the books that some of these guys have written uh, that will be up on some of the overhead here if you want to take a look at those later on that. Father, thank you for this time together. And we do want to pray that you would, even through the time that we've had this conversation, uh, us four who have had the conversation in front of our friends, we recognize that we're frail, that we are finite, that we're sinful. And so... Lord, in places where we may have been in error, we pray that you would protect your body. And Father, we also would pray that we, we, not only the four of us, but all who are listening would be folks like Acts 17.11 describes that would dig into the word to find truth and not just go on what opinions of, of people have to say. So help us, and help us to be a congregation, a denomination, and really just a people who, who pursue truth and would rather be aligned with truth than have our opinion be right. Help us to think what that means for this particular uh, agenda and topic. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.